It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, April 3rd, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. The January 6th committee is asking more questions about the former president's schedule during the Capitol riot. In the case of the scope of these bits of information, this is a news geyser. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. She's raising a lot of money, but a lot of it's from out of state. Still, could Liz Cheney hang on to her Wyoming House seat despite her rift with former President Trump, who's backed Cheney's main challenger, Harriet Hageman? Once I tell people and kind of explain to them who she is and say that she has Donald Trump's endorsement, they either say, they either say, oh, I need to learn more, but I'm more likely to vote for her because of that, or they immediately say, oh, yeah, I'll probably vote for her. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Listen to the all-new Brett Baer podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Baer favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. What was happening inside the White House as protesters turned violent and broke into the Capitol on January 6th of last year? It was a big question in the second impeachment of former President Trump and remains a lingering question for the House Select Committee investigating the Capitol riot. This week, that panel took new steps to answer that question, hearing, for instance, from Jared Kushner, the former president's son-in-law and a senior member of the Trump administration. The committee also voted to refer contempt of Congress charges to federal federal prosecutors against two other senior Trump administration officials, Dan Scavino and Peter Navarro. The full House is expected to vote on those contempt referrals next week. Then there were the two other big headlines that missing seven hours from White House call logs obtained by the committee and text messages between then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. It was a lot. So to help make sense of it and put it all in context, we start with my colleague covering Capitol Hill, Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram. Well, that's something that uh, really kind of dominated the headlines here in Washington, D.C., because, uh, you know, it, it caught it raises the question about what the president was doing during all this. There's a few things we know. We do know that uh, there was a call that was not returned early in the morning uh, to the Senate uh, minority leader, Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not call back. Uh, so they did not talk that day. In fact, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell indicated that they have not he had not spoken with former President Trump since uh, the day after they called the election. Mm-hmm. So then you have at least one call that we know about where the former president tried to call um, Tommy Tuberville, the Republican senator who had been a senator for just a couple of days at that point from Alabama. Did not reach him, mistakenly called Mike Lee, who handed the phone to Tuberville. Tuberville said, they're evacuating the vice president. I have to go. I can't talk right now. And then at some point, we think around 3.30, the president spoke with Kevin McCarthy, the minority mm-hmm. leader in the House of Representatives. Uh, I don't know that the best word to use there is spoke. I think yelled, uh, screamed uh, as uh, Kevin McCarthy beseeched the former president to call off the dogs. Uh, with we know riot. about that phone call. Just to be clear, Chad, we know about that phone call because Kevin McCarthy has talked about that phone call. 
He's talked about it, and it's something that uh, Jamie Herrera Butler, uh, the Republican congresswoman from Washington state, has talked about. Remember, that was an issue in the Mm -hmm. second impeachment trial about getting information about what she had shared with the, uh, the House impeachment managers as they presented their case to the Senate. So that's what we know. But I'm going to go down the rabbit hole just a little bit here, Jared, and this is going to be very important. We had that information come out. We also had the information come out, and this is coming to uh, Robert Costa of CBS mm-hmm. and Bob Woodward of The Washington Post, that uh, Jenny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, had been texting Mark Meadows, uh, you know, trying to implore them to take you know, grave steps here to overturn the election. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason these two pieces of information comes out, nothing comes out in Washington without a reason. It's called a news leak. In the case of the scope of these bits of information. This is a news geyser, frankly. I mean, you can practically see the, you know, the manhole cover, you know, pirouetting on top of this plume of of water. You know, you don't have news leaks uh, that are that well organized in Washington, D.C., unless they're trying to get something out. I mean, this is better coordinated than the, you know, the water dance at the Bellagio in Las Vegas with the fountains there. This was designed because what they're trying to do is put some pressure on the Justice Department, maybe to move against Mark Meadows. Remember, he has been held back in December in contempt of Congress mm-hmm. and maybe try to you know, focus on other figures. You know, the House in the next couple of days is going to vote to hold Dan Scavino and also Peter Navarro in contempt of Congress for not cooperating with the committee. So let's back up a little bit about what this tells us or, or sort of what the, the bigger uh, accusation here is. Right. Because is there an allegation In this leak or whatever you want to call it of criminality by the president, by somebody within the West Wing? Not yet. But what was said, there was the judge in California in the John Eastman case. And Eastman, of course, is the the attorney who, you know, tried to impress upon the president that former Vice President Mike Pence really, you know, could kind of control the process and not recognize certain slates of electors and recognize Mm -hmm. others. And there's some constitutional debate about that. But he suggested a judge in California ruling in the Eastman case about providing information to the 1-6 committee, uh, and he's not agreed to cooperate, John Eastman has, the idea that he thinks the judge did, that the president committed crimes and also John Eastman committed crimes. And having that come from a federal judge and the level of what you're really talking about here, you know, the idea that you're going to have the House and Senate under the Constitution under the Electoral Count Act of 1887, adjudicate the election and certify the election results, and that there were all of these machinations afoot to somehow change that outcome to something that uh, benefited uh, the former president. That's where people, you know, question what was really going on there, and was that a crime? And when you start to add some of this up together, it does raise some of those questions. Well, so now, some the one six are... committee can't say that, and and we right. got to figure out what narrative they're eventually going to put out when they put their uh, report together later this year. So from a Justice Department standpoint, and I was going to ask about that in the context of what you say with this federal judge, is some of the the uh, defendants who have been arrested in the aftermath of uh, the riot here last year have been charged. I, I want to I don't remember if I got the verb, the, the, the verbiage exactly right, but essentially blocking and or obstructing an official act of Congress. That's right. Is and, that and, what and there's been, the accusation that, here would be from the judge? 
That that is one part of it. Uh, the other thing is that you hear from from a certain group of people is they've been charged with seditious conspiracy. You know, you, you mm-hmm. read the history books uh, back in the 1800s, 1900. You know, they would talk about uh, sedition. It's a term we don't use very much right now. But uh, sedition is where you really are. You know, going up against the government uh, that you're you're really throwing uh, the government under the bus. Uh, that is a pretty serious charge. Again, there's no suggestion that some of the top officials uh, were doing that. But if you are really orchestrating an effort to, you know, not recognize one set of of electoral ballots and replace them with another, which doesn't actually match what Mm -hmm. the voters turned in. And not to say that you can do this. I mean, it is up to a vote of Congress to decide, you know, whether or not they recognize a slate of electors from one state or the other. And and I have to say, despite what uh, people have said about John Eastman, when you look at the Electoral Count Act of 1887, and I said this in the fall of 2020, at least my interpretation is there is just a little bit of wiggle room there mm-hmm. for the vice president who is presiding over this session to decide what they can do. I mean, if you look at the verbiage of the actual statute, it says shall be counted. It goes to the passive voice even. And so you don't really know what the vice president is supposed to do. Uh, so the short answer is maybe. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that there's now a bipartisan sort of look at it. Updating that language, making it more clear. What is the role of Congress? What is the role of the vice president as it relates to counting the electoral ballots every four years? That's right. And you might remember in 2001, after the disputed election in Florida, Mm -hmm. is that you had Democrats, mostly from the Congressional Black Caucus and Maxine Waters, the Democratic representative from Los Angeles, uh, come up and they were trying to get the House and Senate to break off and debate contested slates of electors Mm -hmm. from Florida. And you do, the deal is you have to have a petitioner from both the House and Senate. Well, you didn't have somebody co-joining in here from the Senate. You only had, had House members. And Al Gore, the sitting vice president, presiding over his own defeat, he asked Maxine Waters, do you have a Senate co-sponsor? And she said, no, and I don't care. And Al Gore famously said, well, the rules do care. And what we're really saying right now is we aren't really clear about those rules. Right. And so that will be something. And perhaps this uh, investigation from the the January 6th committee, you know, moves forward that that process. Let me finish with this, though, as it relates to the 1-6 committee, Chad. Um, Do these uh, stories this week, whether you look at the, the hours of call logs that now are in dispute and you look at. Uh, the calls to to maybe have the the Supreme Court justice's wife testify in some manner. Does that give you a sense of which direction this committee is working towards, sort of what conclusions they're trying to to solve here? Well, the one thing I have been told is that it appears that they think that Mark Meadows, who actually has been pretty cooperative, might have Mm -hmm. more to say, and there might be other records. So that's part of what's going on here. He gave a bunch of text messages to the uh, committee. That's some of the pressure there. Uh, So that's one thing that they are looking at. But again, the committee has been pretty circumspect about this. You know, there's been debate about whether or not they should have in Jenny Thomas, Mm -hmm. the wife of, you know, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, They have indicated and they have not made a formal request here, but uh, it's been kind of informal and winks and nods. Talk about news leaks. The idea that she should appear voluntarily. Now, she hasn't done that. It would be pretty amazing to issue a subpoena 
to the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice, you know, and and they they start to call into question whether or not he is on the up and up here, you know, you know whether or not he should recuse himself involving cases uh, regarding the election or in, involving the Capitol riot. And, and there aren't really these ethics rules that apply to justices on the Supreme Court. And that's where you've had some members, including the Speaker of the House, who have pushed for something more universal about what they should do. But then, you, you know, you get back to the, you know, divided government, three branches of government here. And, you know, the, the Justice Department, uh, you, you could, well, I should say the Supreme Court here and the Judicial Conference, uh, you know, it's they're really up to deciding what they do at the federal level all the way up to the Supreme Court. I mean, you can legislate some of this, but again, it is kind of up to the judges and individual courts. So just from a planning standpoint, do we expect this committee to have any of these high profile witnesses talk in a public setting? We were told that we thought something like that might come at the end of March, 1st of April. Well, guess what? We're right at that right. nexus right now. Uh, then we're told sometime in May. But, you know, I don't know that they really need to have some of those witnesses come. You know, when did they have that markup session for Dan Scavino and Peter Navarro the other day? 730 at night. Well, the, and it went to about, you know, 839 o'clock. Well, that's a prime time hearing, you know, frankly, mm-hmm. around this place. I mean, they didn't have witnesses. It was really only taken live on on C-SPAN and things. But guess what? That is a prime time here. So they have had the opportunity to make their case. And that has gotten pretty heavy play in the press corps. Let me finish with this. Um, Is this committee sort of working on a timeline that they need to be wrapped up by the end of the year? You know, we've had suggestions from senior Republicans that if they win back the House, this committee is probably going to be disbanded. Yeah. And that's not a surprise. I mean, you have Republican majorities, Democratic majorities. They both you know, have the right and often do put together their own committees or eliminate committees that aren't, uh, you know, something they want to focus on. You know, the Benghazi committee, mm-hmm. the Republicans put together. That was a special committee. When Democrats first got control of the House back in, uh, you know, 2007, they put together a select committee on the environment. Uh, there's a, a committee that's kind of like that now that, that, that the Republicans had put to rest in the control that they had, uh, you know, and for, for, for years, you know, the, the eight year run that they had from 2010 to 2000. I'm, I'm sorry, to 2010 to 2018. So, yes, that's not a surprise to your question about the time. Do they put this out right before the election? Uh, does it even have any impact on the election or is the idea to wrap this up sometime end of the year, uh, you know, right before Christmas? Does it get buried if it's too late at the end of the year or does it sit out there and there is so much to digest? It begins to impact the presidential election for 2024. A lot of questions still about that day, about the work that this committee is doing. Uh, Chad, appreciate your uh, your reporting on it this week. We'll continue to, to keep tabs on it. My pleasure. Wyoming has one congressperson, and since 2016, that representative has been Liz Cheney. She had been a formidable Republican figure, and despite her differences with President Donald Trump at the time, she kept her House leadership position. That changed last year. She'd been one of 10 Republicans to vote to impeach Trump over the January 6th Capitol riot. And once she signed on to serve on the January 6th Congressional Select Committee, Republicans voted her out of that leadership role. Cheney, while on the committee, has remained laser-focused. Did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, 
corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceedings to count electoral votes. Last year, Wyoming Republicans voted to censure Cheney, and then late last year, the state party voted to no longer recognize Cheney as a Republican. The vote was pretty narrow. Cheney told Fox's Brett Baer she voted with President Trump 93% of the time, and as for Wyoming Republicans... Certainly there are people in the state party apparatus uh, of my home state who um, are quite radical, and uh, some of those same people um, include people who uh, were here on January 6th, uh, include a party chair who has toyed with the idea of secession. Since all of this, the former president who won Wyoming in 2020 with 70% of the vote compared to President Biden's 27% has endorsed attorney Harriet Hageman in Wyoming's Republican primary, which isn't happening until mid-August. Hageman told the Fox News rundown recently Cheney's impeachment vote revved her decision to run, and she says Cheney's dismissal of those she calls crazies is a problem. I don't think that you ought to call your constituents crazies. And simply because someone disagrees with her or with me, I don't believe that that makes them crazy. We have a legitimate right to uh, disagree with our government. So what do the polls say? A recent straw poll had Hageman winning overwhelmingly. But other than that, there's not much data. Polling is scant for sure. Victoria Evis is a reporter at the Casper Star Tribune in Wyoming. I, I know there's some internal polling done that is very rarely made public, um, very rarely given to the press. Um, and that and that straw, straw poll was, uh, everyone who voted in it is kind of a party activist. So they're all part of their like county uh, Republican party activism and they're all involved there. So that, that result should definitely be taken with a grain of salt. Um, yeah, polling is basically non-existent. I, I assume as a political reporter, you wish there were more. But I, I know that you have um, been focused on fundraising, the, the, the cash. I mean, that that's one way to sort of gauge interest and, and where people are putting their dollars, right? I mean, Cheney has raised quite a bit of money. What, do we know really where it's coming from and if it will do her any good? Absolutely. Yeah. I think you can kind of never have too much money in these types of races. <laughs> um, but Hageman is getting far more cash from in-state uh, than Cheney is. Uh, Cheney is raising millions each quarter, but Tons of it is coming from out-of-state donors. And that said, Hagman is severely trailing in um, the fundraising. While she did join the race in September, each quarter um, her fundraising just doesn't even come close to what the numbers Cheney is putting up. And of course, that's usually the case for incumbents and um, money doesn't always determine the outcome of a race. But I think the most important metric is uh, in-state versus out-of-state fundraising. And yeah. um, Hageman is uh, definitely putting up more Wyoming donors and dollars. So the number of people and the amount of money she's raising is higher. Yeah, pe people from out of state don't vote in state. So it's, yeah, I, I would right. say that's an important metric. But what's the vibe? Like, tell us about Wyoming voters. You you guys only have one congressional representative. We know it's a small po population, but what do people say about Cheney in the state that overwhelmingly voted for President Trump in 2020? A lot of people have uh, poor name recognition for Hageman in, in the conversations I've had. That said, they're extremely uh, anti-Cheney as well. And I would say uh, some people don't even know who Cheney is. Um, so that should also be considered. I think your everyday voter is a lot less engaged than we might think. Um, I think it's a little early to tell um, and do some man on the street interviews just because it is so far out. I think a lot of people who are going to the polls 
educate themselves the day of or the, the couple days leading up to it. So the fact that everyone is anti-Cheney and people have poor name recognition for Hageman uh, doesn't tell us much right now, but it's the state of things a few months out from the primary. Then what's the vibe on other topics? Like, are people paying attention to the war in Ukraine? Are there more local issues that they they seem to be focused on? Is agriculture like a big topic of conversation among people in Wyoming? That's a good question. I think it varies a lot. As it pertains to the race, people are very focused on Cheney's vote to impeach and Cheney's participation on the committee. That's often what they point to when they express her their displeasure with her. The other day I was having a conversation uh, at a Hagman town hall with a with a Casper voter. And he was telling me how he was having trouble getting his retirement money. And uh, years ago, the Cheney office helped him figure that out and helped him have an income. But even so, despite that very like interpersonal situation and direct help he got from her office, it didn't matter because of her service on the uh, January 6th commission. You you just referenced that you were at a Hageman Town Hall. How available has Cheney been? I mean, I know she had a, a recent event in March. I think tickets were like $10. Um, but I, I've been reading that she's largely avoided town halls. Is that accurate? Like, have there been things to go to that, that Liz Cheney's been present at? Definitely not as many open public events um, as Hageman has, been, Hageman has been doing, which um, I think is probably going to change as we get into the summer. And I think that's pretty typical for an incumbent because they just have higher name recognition where Hageman needs to get her name out there and really engage with people and, and have people get to know her. But yeah, you're definitely right. Um, for the public, it seems as though right now Hageman has been much more accessible than Cheney, at least when it comes to in-person events. Do you think that will will change as the primary draws closer? Do you think do you think she'll see the writing on the wall and say, I should spend more time, you know, in state? Or does she think that she's like, is, is this race, has this race gotten away from her in a way that, that you know, she might not uh, show up more? Yeah, whether it's gotten away from her, I have no idea. That's that's the million dollar question. Um, <laughs> but I think as the primary draws closer, um, I was told by her team that things will start to ramp up more as the summer comes. I, I was also reading that, um, like, one of the members of the state Republican Party who voted against censuring Cheney in state said she's now never voting for her again. That, um, And she called out that, that Cheney's avoided events and that she called Republicans radicals. She won't come talk to them about January 6th and sort of explain her decision making process on, you know, voting for impeachment or serving on this committee. And, and you've pointed out in a recent article you wrote um, that all of that money that Cheney used to raise in Wyoming from like big GOP donor names who are invested in politics, a lot of that is now going to, to Hageman. I mean, if Cheney were to show up in Wyoming and sort of explain herself more, do you think that would matter or shift things? I think it I think it would matter for sure. That said, she she does explain herself often whether it's in right. statements or in articles, it's just not as directly to the people, I guess, which of course matters to voters. But yeah, I think she explains her decisions and she's and she's an open book about a lot of that stuff, but she might not do it as much directly in Wyoming at certain events as she does kind of in statements and to, in interviews and things like that. Talk to me about Harriet Hageman. I know there are other candidates, but Donald Trump has backed her. How is that going over in Wyoming? And, and how much of a known quantity is she in Wyoming? 
uh, yeah, like I said, name recognition for Hagman right now seems poor um, based on the conversations I've had. But um, she, once I tell people and kind of explain to them who she is and say that she has Donald Trump's endorsement, they either say, they either say, oh, I need to learn more, but I'm more likely to vote for her because of that. Or they immediately say, oh, yeah, I'll probably vote for her because of that. So I think that the endorsement can't be taken lightly. I think that's a, a, a very uh, big deal. And as for Hageman as a, as a candidate, she's a water and natural resources lawyer, has been uh, fighting the federal government uh, in certain cases for decades now. Uh, she's based out of uh, Cheyenne and D.C. She grew up in Fort Laramie, which is kind of a more, much more rural ranching area outside of uh, or north of Cheyenne, I believe. She has very much been marketing herself as a true Wyomingite. And once again, as people often do, calling Liz Cheney out for being a Virginian and um, being from Virginia and not being a true Wyomingite, which is the time old criticism of, of Cheney. And, and honestly, while it might be a bit tired of a criticism, it still holds true for voters. Uh, people bring that up to me sometimes. They say, oh, she's not really from here, uh, things like that. Um, talk to me just briefly a little bit more about Donald Trump in Wyoming. Why do people, and I didn't know that you guys were called Wyomingites. I love that. Um, talk to me more about what Wyomingites think of Donald Trump. Why do they like him? I know, it very, you know, I'm from California. Um, the Donald Trump supporters I know there, you know, they have specific reasons, you know, why they like him. It's not just a whole of, you know, a whole of Donald Trump approach. Like, are there specific things that Wyomingites specifically like about Trump's policies or him himself? There are, I think there are two main things in there, and they're mostly related to uh, energy, which is, I have to admit, not my beat. But I think they were very uh, pleased with how he made um, the U.S. as close to energy independence as we'd been in a while um, mm -hmm. in terms of and, and that has really come to a head with the war in Ukraine and our dependence on Russian oil. And the other thing is right when Biden got into office, basically, he blocked these federal drilling leases. And um, that is something that Trump didn't do. And the oil and gas industry is, is also ingrained in the culture. And so it's kind of this immovable culture um, that people are very hesitant to uh, move away from because their families have been involved in it for generations and generations. And, and Trump was uh, a great president when it comes to protecting that is what people feel. Uh, they, they felt he was great for the oil and gas workers. Victoria, before I let you go, is there anything I didn't ask you about like Wyoming politics or this race that you've either stumbled upon or find of note or of interest that you want to share? One thing that I do find uh, fascinating about this race is I think that, I mean, Hageman's team is very much made up of uh, former Trump operatives and former Trump uh, campaign members. And it seems as though they're kind of, in a way, taking some pages out of his campaign strategies. So, for example, there, there were a couple months ago, there was an ad run that named Cheney a Clinton Republican and kind of compared her to Hillary Clinton. And just the other day, uh, Liz Cheney told The New York Times that she does she rejects the quote unquote crazies and doesn't need to explain things to them or something along those lines. And she was referring to Wyoming GOP uh, party leadership. And mm. the Hagman campaign has really harped on that as well. Kind of like when Donald Trump harped on when Hillary said, call his supporters a basket of deplorables. And right. he's, they're harping on it in a very similar way. They're, they keep pushing it. They keep saying, oh, 
I don't believe that my constituents um, are crazies. I don't believe that party leadership are crazies. Like I love the people of Wyoming and uh, kind of standing up for the people and demonizing uh, what Cheney said to the New York Times. So I think, yeah, there are some parallels being definitely being drawn between campaign strategy against Hillary and now campaign strategy now, which I find fascinating. Victoria Evis of the Casper Star Tribune. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, the vote on confirming the next justice to the U.S. Supreme Court. We expect the Senate to take final action on the nomination of Katanji Brown-Jackson. She appears to have the votes with support of at least one Republican, Maine Susan Collins, along with all 50 Democrats. We'll cover that vote, talk about the big decisions left for the court as the term comes to a close. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay in touch with those you care about. For our entire team here at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.